Did it take three years?
have one man that God sent into this world that was the man that God intended all men to be. He had become splendidly alive. Isaiah told about us about this change when Jesus was born as the Messiah would come. He would look like an ordinary man. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 53, verse 2. He says, For he shall go up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or no comeliness. And when we see him, this is this, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The Living Bible says there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Uh, the message says this. It says simply, nothing attractive about him to cause us to take a second look. Well, this says a whole lot. It especially says something to us about what God feels about beauty. Some people are, 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 are blessed with This literally shows us what God thinks. God doesn't care how what you really look like. What I'm talking about, if you know, even if you're overweight, if you're underweight, or whatever else it is, or, or how you feel about your appearance, or whatever, that's not that's secondary or third as far as God is concerned. He's not concerned. And yet you think about this world, how we put so much emphasis on what we look like. I mean, I mean, every day you're faced with the boosting of, of people talk, looking at and saying, if you don't have this, you don't look this way. If your hair is not this way, if your, if your clothes are not this way, whatever. And God, it's all about appearance. And yet it tells us that when God was preparing His Son to come into this world, think about it, He didn't care about His appearance. He looked like anybody else. If you saw Him in a crowd, you would not recognize Him or pull Him apart from anybody else. I, I think about that so much, and, and yet you think about who did he place him? He placed him with two people that were poor, a carpenter. It tells us something about whether or not God thinks the advantages for, for uh, uh, people are because you've got a lot of money. I will tell you simply that some of the happiest people I've ever seen in my life and family are those that don't have a whole lot. But they don't have a whole lot, and yet by the same token, they're willing to share with everybody else. It demonstrates how God the Father feels about human beings, about our appearance. And yet Paul, in Corinthians 10, now Paul, you know, the, the Latin word for Paul means this, it means little. And Paul was just a little short, bald-headed guy. And he, he says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, it says, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is secret. And so, what, what am I saying? I'm saying, before you major too much on appearance and things, you know, don't pay a whole lot of attention to it because God can do it. C.S. Lewis uses the term good infection, what he says. Good infection taught by close association with the real man, Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be affected by Jesus Christ where it would be a good infection. And what C.S. Lewis meant was the meaning of the incarnation is this. Jesus Christ became like us in order that we might become like Him. Well, let me say that again. Jesus Christ became like us so that we might become like Him. The incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, was not an end in itself. It was God's way of coming to us that we might be redeemed from the penalty of sin and then transformed from within into the image of His Son. Listen to what it says over in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. I'm upholding those that he saved. They don't want to 
takes your vaccination, and I'm on the Lord's side, and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm going to stand with him in that. But by the same token, that does not mean I don't stand with our people who've had the vaccination. And I've not said that. And you've heard me from the very first, when all this thing hit, telling you that what I wanted you to do is to pray, and to pray simply, to pray simply as to what God wants to do. That, to me, is, is the real issue. The issue is not what the government wants or whether you drink or whatever else. It's what does God want to do. And that's the thing I've emphasized to you. I've emphasized this over and over again. And no, I do not think one group, because they, they haven't taken the vaccination, they're more spiritual than other groups. I've not said that. And so I'm just making that clear. I will stand with both of you in your decision. If you place God first and if you sought Him and if He has shown you that that's what you're supposed to do, you're to see my whole, my whole problem with all this is lack of faith because it's going to go someplace else. I guarantee you. But we hear about bracelets and we hear about this WWJD, what would Jesus do? But the Lord's purpose was not that we would try to act like Jesus, so that would be impossible. I'm going to tell you something. As much as I want to be like Jesus, as much as I try to be like Jesus, I promise you I can't do it. You can't either. You can't love other people the way they ought to be loved. You can't have the joy in the midst of all kinds of circumstances that you ought to have. You can't, you can't do the things. You can't have the strength and the power to overcome temptation and all the other things. You can't do it unless you really truly trust Him. Unless you learn how to, how to get in the Word. And unless you learn how to spend time alone with Him. Because I, I, I just keep going back to that, what, what A.W. Tozer said. He said simply, that when we get we get so close to Jesus, we become more and more like Him in likeness. That closeness results in likeness, is what He said. And so, uh, so we ask, what would Jesus do? But it would be impossible that we also allow Him to have our own being that we would be working in us and through us. That's what this is why the Bible says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. If God looks at you and He looks at your life, what's His hope for you? That you'll act better, talk better. No, his whole hope for you is that you get out of the way and let Jesus Christ come in you and work his life through you. That's what he wants to do. And to be filled, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, 18, be not drunk with wine with excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means it's not so much that you get more of the Holy Spirit. I believe that when you got saved, you got as much of the Holy Spirit you possibly can get. But here's the whole problem. He ain't got enough of you. That's the problem. You've got to give yourself over to him. And he keeps putting his finger on areas in your life, one after another, and saying, give me this, give me this, and give me this, and give me this. That's what he wants you to do. So, this, it, it, so working in and through us, this is why the mystery in the Old Testament that they did not understand, and, and, and from the Old Testament on, the Bible says that they had, a, they had a veil over their eyes, and when they had a veil over their eyes, what was it? that they did not see. They did not see Colossians 1.27. Christ in you is the hope of glory. God's hope for you is that you get out of His way and let Jesus take you of your life. So in these verses that are our text, verse 7 and 8, Paul states the first part of the doctrine is like this, and he says to us, he just simply, he says to us simply that that Christ is, is in us, and he says simply, he says that uh, that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in like of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. So the first thing I want you to know is, is this, he became like us. The first thing I want you to know is he became like us. The second person of the Godhead, the Son, became like us. Rather that rather he became like each of us should be. Let me say it again. He became like each of us should be. And and, and so, can God become like a man to, to to feel as we feel and suffer as we suffer? The Bible says yes, he can, and he did. Isaiah nine six. I want you to look at Isaiah nine six, and look what this says. For unto us, how many times have we read this? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, when he first came, the government was not on his shoulder, was it not? He never went to the government. You wait till he comes back to that coming. 
For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, here's what I want you to see in that. I want you to notice two words in there. The first and for the top part is for unto us a child is born. A child is born. The second part of that is unto us a son is given. What's it saying to Here's what it's saying. Jesus, listen to this, was always God's son. In other words, he was all, he was at the creation when he In fact, the Bible says about Jesus that there's nothing that was made that he did not make. So he made all things. In the book of John, it tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God when he created everything. So Jesus is God, and so as God, he has always been. Okay? So because he's always been, he would not be born as God. Because he came and he was a son. He's God's son. He was God's son. And it says a son was given. Well, why was he given? He was given because he had already always existed. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to see this in just a minute. But he he was given because he had always been. I am that I am. That's what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh. What does it mean? I mean, I, I always existed, and I, I have no end. I have no beginning. I have no end. And so Jesus here, as God's Son, is given. Consequently, as a son, he was given. In the incarnation, Jesus became what? A man. So here, look what it says. For us as a child is born. So if humanity was born into this world, but he had always existed. He became a man, so he was born. But because he always existed, he was son was given. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm talking about? Am I making that about as clear as much? You know, just that look between acid injection and something else out there. Do you see what I'm talking about? And, and this is a big deal. And, and and so he was born a baby. He was born a baby. Hence, as a child, he was born, not given. He was born. And the divine nature is without beginning. So the human nature dates from the moment of his birth to Bethlehem in Bethlehem until the time of what? That God called him home. That's our, that's our crucifixion. So Paul writes this over in Romans chapter one, verse uh, in Romans chapter one, verse three and four. Look at what he says. For unto us, uh, Romans one. Uh, do I have that down? A one, yeah, three and four. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of what? The seed of David. In other words, what does that mean? It means simply this he, that he was born as, as the, the lineage of Jesus. When you look at the New Testament and you read, for instance, there are two genealogies in the New Testament. There is the book of Matthew, and what's the what's the theme of the book of Matthew? He's coming the coming king. He's a king. And the lineage of the book of Matthew then takes him all the way back to where? Takes him back to Abraham. Let me see my class. Let me see my class. Let me be able to act real smart and give all these answers. So it takes him all the way back to where? Abraham. Now, it also says in there, it talks about Joseph, and it says Joseph, it doesn't say so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so. But when it comes to Joseph, what does it say? It says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Why? Jesus was born by the Holy Spirit. So it takes him, in Matthew, it takes him back to Abraham. Now, when you get another genealogy, you get over the book of Luke. And what is the main phrase in the book of Luke? What is it? Son of man. So he's the son of man. Okay, where's it going to take him to? It's going to take him all the way back to where? Adam. But the amazing thing about this, even though Joseph was not his father and Mary was his mother, yet you father the lineage of their families all the way back through, and they too, that if he, if, even if Joseph was, if Joseph was his father, which he was not, Jesus would still have the right to kingship because of how he, he came forth. So he's the seed of David. He, he, was, he was born the seed of David in his humanness. Okay? I, I, and I, I hope that's clear to you. Uh, and so his humanity, uh, in, in back to Romans verse 4, go to verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power. So he's declared.
declared, he's declared to be God's son. He's born of the seed of David, but he's declared or given to be the son of God. Because what we have, you know, it, it wasn't human and he had special powers or something. No, he was he was one hundred percent God and he was one hundred percent man.
was talking about that they told them that they were not Abraham. You know, they, they were trying to claim just because out of tradition and they, because uh, Abraham was, uh, was supposed to be in their lineage or whatever, that they, you know, they possessed the kingdom and everything else. And Jesus would tell them just because that they were uh, in the lineage, that didn't mean that they were saved or whatever. And what did they say to Jesus? They said, we were not born. himself the very nature of man, both inwardly and outwardly. And so the word morph refers to man's nature, but the Greek word homonia refers to an outward appearance. That's the second word that Paul uses is the word likeness. He said that Jesus was made in the likeness of humans. He looked like a man. He was born a Jewish baby. He grew. He looked like others of his race and physical standpoint. So he outwardly and inwardly, he, he, he looks like anybody else. The third word is the Greek word schema, and it's verse 8. And, and, and verse 8, it says, in the appearance of a man. Here, the thought is conformity to human experience. In other words, there wasn't anything that, that humans go through that Jesus didn't go through. All the feelings, all the emotions, he wept. You know, remember? When Mary and Martha looked at him and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And he says to Martha, standing there, he says, do you not realize that uh, about the resurrection? She said, I know that the day is coming over. And, and I wonder how many times when you try to share with other people, they come back to you the same way. That's what you rely on. And, and what did Jesus say? She, no. she said, no, you don't understand. She said, I am the resurrection. I am the life resurrection. He that believeth in me, although he may die, yet shall he live again. That's what he said. He was those things. And so, uh, when you think of the way Jesus becomes like us, he becomes like us also this way. He becomes like us, and he wept, he sweat with great drops of blood, his sadness over Jerusalem, his righteous anger over the money changers in the temple. Jesus had all the emotions that you and I ever had. And by the way, his anger in there was a righteous indignation. Do you know the Bible teaches us in Ephesians to be angry, be angry and sin not? You know, you get mad and not sin. So anyway, but but how comforting this should be to every Christian. Christ was like us. Listen to me. He was like you. There's not an experience that anybody in this building could ever have or go through that Jesus hadn't already experienced. He was like us. He experienced everything that you experienced. He knows your problems, and because of that, He can help you in the midst of this. But I've got somebody that comes to me and they want to talk to me about drugs or an addiction or something. Who do I want to talk to? Do I want somebody that's never experienced Maybe they read a book or something, or do I want somebody that's gone through it and they've overcome and they've had victory? When I have somebody wants to talk to somebody about a divorce and they're trying to overcome it, who do I want to talk to? Do I want somebody that's never experienced that, doesn't know the hurt and the pain and the ripping out of the heart that goes through because somebody's been through a divorce and the lack of trust that you have to that you, you build up inside and you think everybody's against you and everything else? Do I want somebody like that, or do I want somebody that has been through it and been victorious over it? I'm not talking about somebody that just that just went through it because they're still having problems. No, I'm talking about somebody that I see walking with the Lord. Who do I want to talk to? And that's where Jesus is. We got a we got a Savior that knows what you're going through and can experience that. And so Christ provides salvation not only for the life to come, but also for this life as you come over the things that constantly try to force you into the image and mold of this world. Okay, Lee, then I got all this pressure. I got all this stuff coming at me. And how do I overcome that? Well, then go over to Romans 12. Romans 12. I don't even know what I gave you. Romans 12, yeah, verse 1. Look what this says. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. You first got to be, this is what you got to do. You got to come and commit. Lord, I'm going to commit my life to you. 
a living sacrifice. And then it says this, is to present your body in holy acceptance with God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says in verse 2, and be not conformed to this, to be not conformed to this world. Quit allowing people and the world to put you into their mold. Quit living your life by what everybody else thinks. Quit worrying about what everybody else is going to say if you try to live for Jesus. Quit doing it. We, we, we spend too many times, I see too many Christian people that are living their life in false guilt. In other words, they feel guilty all the time for things that they should not feel guilty for. And as a result of that, they, they, they live their life in condemnation all the time. When the Bible has plainly said in Romans 8, 1, there is now no more condemnation for those who Christ set you free. Say, but you don't understand my past. Your past is gone if you've come to Jesus and given it to Him. He's taken your sins and gotten rid of all of them. He's thrown them into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered anymore.
was physical. For instance, verse 3. Listen to what it says. Verse 4 here. It says, Now when the tempter came to him, said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Did you know she said, If you are the Son of God? Did God didn't say that. Satan has a way of mis, uh, uh, misclothing Scripture. He said, If you say, Well, Son of God didn't say, He said, This is my beloved. See, the first thing that happens to you when you're going through something and Satan comes after you, he'll try to convince you that God doesn't love you. He'll take out the love factor. But here, here it goes. Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts him, and the first temptation is physical. And we learn, here's what we learn, the significance of the temptation of Jesus' answer in verse 4. Because he says, he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The first temptation was to put physical needs about spiritual ones, and Jesus rejected it on biblical principles. How, how many of us have that same attitude? Well, i got to take a job on Sunday. Rather than trusting God to do with him what he needs to do. i, I got to work on Sunday. I've got to get out there and get some money. So i got my lender. I don't know what I'm going to do. i, I got this. i got to do this. And, and many times, those problems are as a result of those things. There's nothing wrong with material things. Thank God gives them to us. Often abundantly He gives them to us. And we may be we can be thankful when they come into our hands. But there's always that temptation to put those things in the place of God. That's the same thing as idolatry. To seek material objects in the place of the work of our life. Has the Lord called you to a particular work? And I guarantee you what happens is the devil will come and jingle some things in front of you and then he will take care he'll take he'll take care of other things in your life if you trust. God will never call you that He doesn't provide the necessity. Do not allow physical things to keep you from His best in your life. I mean, we went over here on Melbourne Street one time, and we got a call from another pastor. And had to come over there and, and help this lady because she was, she was widowed. She owed $40,000 on the house, and we got over on the house. And when we did, we got over there, and and the house, we agreed to go over there. We're going to fix it. Got over there, and the whole house was sitting on the ground. It was sitting on the ground. We didn't even have a foundation. And we looked at one another, and we said, "We got to call people from different places, different churches, and we all got together with the guys and the guys to hang out with one another." And we went over there, and we looked at that thing, and we thought, "There ain't no way in the world we're going to fix this." Only way we're going to fix this thing is tear it down, build her another house. So we got her to move out of the house and move over to her daughter's house, and she did. And we come in there with the backhoe. Tore that whole house down. And after we did that, we stood and looked at one another and realized we didn't have a dime to our name. Her house was laying on the ground. And one of the guys looked down and found a penny, and he said, Wait a minute, we got the money. <laughs> and we built her a three bedroom house, central air, cabinets, the whole nine yards. But we didn't start with any kind of money whatsoever. So, God, if God is in something and He's called you to something, He'll provide the necessities you need that will meet that need, whatever it might be, if you'll just trust Him. So do not allow physical things to keep you in bed. Now, the second temptation was a spiritual one, verse 6. Because verse 6 says, And He said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He shall give His angels charge. This is a misquote, by the way. Charge over you and to keep you in all your ways in the hands they shall bear you. It's close to saying and keep you in all your ways. Satan was tempting Jesus to presume upon God, to place himself in a situation that was not for God's leading, and then to expect a supernatural deliverance from that. what he was saying. Jesus answered that we should never put God to the test, is what he's saying. So the Lord gives you a job to do, and once you begin to think, all of a sudden, you know, you get somebody, and, and, and maybe he gives you a job, you say, well, I'm going to come every day, and I'm going to run and sweep the floors, and let me do that. And all of a sudden, you see somebody down the hallway, and they're doing something different than you. And you, you start looking at what you, you're doing, and, and, and you think, well, it's, it, it's not very spectacular, you know, and, and you want to leave to, to do another job, even though what you should do is do the best job you can on the job you've been called to do. Or suppose you act in your own way, get into trouble financially, and then expect God to bring bring blessings in situations that's not His will for you to do that in the first place. You go heavily in debt. And now you got to try to figure a way to get out of it. And how many times have I seen Christians get themselves head over heels into debt 
without seeking the will of God. And as a result of that, then they want to apply Philippians 4.19, that my God shall supply all thy needs according to his He'll do it, but he's not going to do it if you get out there and put yourself on the limb and then expect him you know, to do that. If we are to go forward, but we're to go forward under his direction. Then there's the third temptation, which was vocation. The devil knew that Christ was to receive the kingdom of this world, for this was, was uh, told beforehand in Psalms 2 8. It says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth for your possession. So Jesus was going to get. It wasn't Satan to get. But he felt he, he's already had these things. And Satan's acting like, Well, if you bow down to me, I'll give you these things. So Satan argued with Jesus that he could have the prize, listen out this, without working for it. Well, that does sound And if a guy doesn't work, now I know there's people that just able and things that can't work. I understand that. But a guy that's strong and able to do things he doesn't work, the Bible says he's going to be admitted. He's admitted. You know, what should he do? Pay for the check? Go buy the food for you? Is that what he's going to do? Whatever. No. I, I'm, I'm serious. We're in trouble that way. And so Satan argued with Jesus that he could have the prize without working for it. He said, look, the way you're choosing for yourself is the way of the cross. He said, verse 8, look, just ask me, say, and I will give you the nations, only just fall down and worship me. There is no temptation that comes to you and me that falls outside the scope of these temptations and Christ chose the path of victory in all of them. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 and verse 13, it says this. It says, for we dare not class our, ourselves to compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they Okay, this is first Corinthians, I'm sorry. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And then it says this, For there's no temptation that's overtaken you, except such as common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted to beyond what you're able, but with those temptations will also make the way of escape that you be able to bear. What is the way that you are able to bear? He's going to show you a door. young people sometimes that they need to take the Bible on the day trip. Lay it right in the middle. That way he's going to get next to you. He's got to fall off Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to try to get to you. Amen? You know? And, and so, I mean, don't get yourself in a position or whatever that way. You look for the door. Do you stand in similar circumstances? Christ knows it and has experienced it all. He offers help to you and if you come and trust Him. And Jesus became like us in temptation, so He would have us to become like Him in our ability to withstand it and triumph over it. Then there's a third reason for the incarnation, and that's the pattern of suffering that we go through. Jesus not only became like us in temptation, but He became like us in suffering. Have you ever suffered? Suffering is not because you brought it on yourself. Have you ever suffered? And, and Jesus suffered to become like us in suffering. Don't change theories like that. You hear me every Sunday talk about those 
time suffering for Jesus took on a new significance as followers. So in First Peter, Peter was writing to Christians who were uh, taking a stand for Christ, and as a result, they were suffering persecution. So Peter writes to encourage them, and as he does, he thanks them and reminds them of the suffering Jesus went through to buy their freedom and their salvation. I don't know about you, but does that not help me? It helps me. You know, whatever I'm going through, my faith is better than that. But my Lord is better than my faith. That helps me. So the suffering was to be like his. They were to suffer patiently, without backbiting, without anger, without bitterness, committing themselves into the hands of God. As, as Philippians 4 says, uh, let your moderation be known to all men. But it says in 1 Peter 2.21, it says, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow his steps. And we think about what happened in Acts 40 with John and Peter. Says that they agreed with him that when they had called for the apostles, Peter and John, and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. In verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, listen to it, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You won't hear that in the prosperity gospel. You won't hear that you're supposed to suffer for me. It is perfect and it is to be the model of the child Christ that scratches it, you know, the letter. The word example refers to a copybook of, of a teacher prepared by a teacher for a pupil. And it's perfect in its, in its model and a child Christ to scratch the letters out in imitation of the teacher's feet. Peter says that Jesus became our copybook so we might pattern our reactions to suffering like he did. But remember, Peter was the one who said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere you God 